Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name is Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. For our next stop on this adventure, we are joined by Sally McRae. Sally is a world-renowned ultra-distance trail runner and motivational speaker. She has received remarkable success in the trail running world, competing in some of the toughest ultra-distance races around the globe. Sally has raced in world-famous ultra-marathon events such as the Leadville Trail 100, Transvolcania, Badwater 135 and the Ultra Trail Mount Fuji. In addition to these athletic accomplishments, Sally is also an inspirational public speaker who spreads her message of motivation to audiences worldwide. Her talks often aim to provide listeners with stories of perseverance and determination, while encouraging them to take control of their lives and find fulfillment through physical activity. And in this episode of the Outside and Active podcast, we talk through Sally's rise in the ultra-running world, her experiences at Birdwater 135, and how she looks to support up-and-coming athletes in the industry. But just before we jump into this episode, a massive thank you to the two sponsors on this week's episode of the Outside and Active podcast. Dry Rope is the original outdoor changing rope designed to help you get active outside, whatever the weather. A bit like having your own portable changing room, the oversized design of the Dry Rope Advance gives you plenty of space to get changed in and out of a wetsuit or sports kit, but it's versatile enough to be worn as a coat or jacket made from 100% recycled fabrics. This waterproof and windproof outer protects you from the elements, whilst its super warm inner lining helps you dry off quickly after getting out the water. What people really love about the Dry Robe Advance, though, is its versatility. It's perfect for a huge range of outdoor activities, including surfing, wild swimming, triathlon, paddleboarding, mountain biking, camping, and even walking your dog in torrential rain. To find out more about Dry Robe and this awesome product, head to dryrobe.com. And we are also delighted to once again be working with eGlove. eGlove's performance and sports-specific smartphone gloves have been developed with complete focus on the end user. Whether your sport of choice is horse riding, running, hiking, or simply walking to work, their technically superior touchscreen gloves allow for full movement, keep your hands warm and dry, enable you to grip reins or handlebar securely, and still mean that you can call, text, or tweet via mobile while you're wearing them. We're happy to be helping keep your hands warm by offering a special 15% discount on all eGlove products when you use the code OWENDAY15 at checkout. Browse the full range and make the most of this special discount by heading to www.eglove.co.uk. Check out the description and the article on the Outside and Active website to see the full code. And with that, let's head straight into this episode with Sally. Well, I won't be ruffled if you need to pause or anything. Like, I know, I understand, like, how it goes. So I'm probably going to keep a lot of this in. Yeah. <laughs> Are we recording? This is a camera. This is awesome. Oh, this, is, this, is, this is now turned into podcast recording and camera 101. We're not going to talk. We've got Sally, one of the best ultra runners. We're not going to talk about running. I completely refuse. Sorry if you're listening and you want to talk about. We're talking about our side jobs. We're going to teach you about the technology and equipment you need to exactly. run your own podcast. Exactly. But thank you for joining us on the outside and that's a podcast Thank it's a pleasure to have you here me. over in the uk you've, you've flown over especially to the, the like we said really sunny uk at the moment uh, it's really warm here i think it's uh, minus one degrees yes. so uh, it's a bit different to california but thank you for joining us so and, so happy to be here yeah. i i don't get to the uk enough i need to this silly tiny little island that it, we are it yeah. is but americans love brits we love <laughs> your accent we can't get enough of it we always try to um assimilate it and 
so. <laughs> I feel like the UK and the US is like a sibling relationship. It's yes, like a, it is a sibling relationship. It's like a love-hate. Yes. It really is. <laughs> But we're going to kick off with a question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. And it's very simple. What do you love about being outside and active? Mm. Wow, that's a loaded question. I think we could talk about that for the entire podcast. But I know that since I was a little girl, I've loved being outside. I think the best way to describe it as a kid is just it felt like freedom and adventure. And very different from being indoors. There's just something about... And I grew up in a very sunny place in Southern California, so I love being in the sunshine. But now that I've gotten older, I, I can I can say with confidence that all of my favorite memories have been outside. My favorite pastimes in life have been in the outdoors. And yeah, wow. Except for ha- I didn't have my kids in the outdoors, so that's probably the only <laughs> the only favorite pastime. Well, that isn't a pastime. That would have a been moment. a commitment. That yeah, been a commitment. <laughs> definitely. But where, where you're living now, is it quite easy to get to find the trails and, and mountains around where you are, or is it? Uh, is it well. Yeah, it's that's actually a great question because I do live in Huntington Beach, California, which is about 50 kilometers south of Los Angeles, and because I'm right there on the coast. Most people are perplexed as to how I could be a mountain runner, but we have a little secret and you can get to mountains that are 3000 meters and a little bit higher, uh, within 45 minutes from my front door. So yeah, I can get to really big mountains. Um, and then I'm also about three hours away from the bad water course. So I can get to an extreme desert and really big mountains, um, very close. And then my local trails, um, I can hop on a trail in about 10 or 15 minutes. So I have a good variety in my training. So I have coastal trails in the hills, and then I have big mountains, and then I have coastline running. Nice mix. Yeah, it's a good mix. mix. Nothing to complain about. We've been treated this weekend, and on the podcast in general, to some (laughs) real ultra running royalty where we've had we've had Scott Jurek we've had Gary oh Robbins we've had Rob Pope from the UK and uh, we're going to be chatting to Dean and obviously yourself and I'm always interested and I've, I've asked this to all of them and I will be asking this to all of them is at what point and at what stage do you remember when the door towards ultra running opened and you found out about it because I feel like from what I've learned about the running community is that it's you start with running and then you say, oh, what's this ultra? I can go further. Or I right. can do this like a different world. <laughs> How did it expose yourself to ultra running? Yeah. Well, you listed legends who I would not put myself on that list. Scott Jurek and, and Dean. I mean, they were them and Ann Trayson, Jen Shelton were the first that influenced me through Runner's World magazine. And I followed their adventures and, and whatever I could find. Mm. It was back in 2009 when I first discovered ultras in that way. I was just flipping through a magazine. Um, you know, I, I started out as a soccer player and endurance running for me was just something that I was doing while I was a teacher. Uh, post-college, I needed to keep training because I yeah. had spent my entire life training. So really coming upon ultra running was was just out of pure curiosity. And I'd say that's probably been fairly signature to why I have done a lot of things in life. I'm just curious and I just want to try. So, um, after reading 
the magazine article about, it was about a hundred mile race and these superhumans. I think that was maybe what the article was about. These superhumans doing these ultra races. I, I, before that hadn't known about the races. I didn't, I thought it was a, a weird event <laughs> to a degree. Like, why would you do that? But then what intrigued me the most was that's amazing that our bodies can do that. And so at the end of 2009, I started training for a race and I had run a couple road marathons very casually. I was never competitive and, um, I would do like one or two a year. So I decided to sign up for an 80 K ultra instead of the 50 K that was recommended just because I felt like mm, running like six more kilometers, eight more kilometers or eight more kilometers is not really like a big challenge. So yeah, I want to do like, give me a big challenge. So an 80 K race, uh, American river 50 in the United States was my first ultra. And that was in April of 2010. Wow. And, and so since then, did you kind of realize, Oh, when I'm training for this and when I'm competing, I'm, I'm actually quite good at this so my body can <laughs> adapt to them my mind are quite good at adapting to this sort of activity and oh, so can I see how far I can push myself was it what were the stages to kind of grow in the ultra marathon world yeah I think it's fairly similar to anyone that's listening that is new to ultra considering ultra or has been in it for a while I think um it, I had all those same feelings. I, I think that anyone have when they're doing something new and, um, some nervousness. I, I remember going to the start line, just being so nervous because at that time, um, in 2009, 2010, there wasn't a lot of material. There weren't like books and, you know, YouTube documentaries and, and training plans online. So the only way that I knew to train or to understand these races, I would go on Facebook and do a search and I would write an ultra marathon and whoever's names popped up, I would message them and ask them questions. Wow. And so, and then I met people that way who were doing the race that I was doing. And I remember going the day before to pick up my bib and meeting these people that I had met on Facebook. And that was my initial um, impression of the ultra running community. I just thought, wow, these people are so kind and so helpful. And, and that carried through into my whole experience. It carried into race day as I stood on, I remember waiting to use the bathroom and all these people talking to me. I remember riding on the bus to the start line and making friends on the bus. Um, and then during the race, just you're out there for so long, you start to just meet people and have conversation. Um, but having a competitive athletic background, I really wanted to do well at the race. And so that was a big focus for me. And I didn't know what I was doing. So by mile, I don't know, I think I was, I was like 60 K in. I started cramping up and I thought that I could do the whole race on just a few hundred calories. I didn't know about eating and salt tablets and stuff. So someone on the course when I was cramping up came running back to me they heard me kind of yelling because all my muscles <laughs> and my legs were, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, you need to go back. You need to eat something. Here's some salt tabs. He gave me some of what he had. Um, I was only about a hundred meters away from the, from an aid station I had just left. And so, um, he helped me understand how to use those and, and I ended up finishing. And so I think what ended up happening for that first one is despite all that, I still finished in seventh place and I loved it. I, I just loved the whole experience. Um, and 
I think at that time too, you know, it was starting to grow a little bit in popularity on, on social media. And so I signed up for another race five weeks later and then another one a week after that. So I did uh, three. You got the bug. Yeah, you, I did. You, you definitely got involved. <laughs> I did that. it in the wrong way, but yeah, I, I was hooked. So. But, but what you said about the running community and that person that supported you and the yeah. People listening to this that are in the ultramarathon, you know, community, running community in general will know how supportive people are at yeah. races in general within the community. But it, it just shows there of like the people that, that aren't involved. It's 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 amazing how like um, Scott had said that he would camp out and and wait for people to finish that finishing after him and wait for everyone. And mm-hmm. and um, Gary said the same thing as well. Like you just you get involved like you're happy for the people that finished first you're happy for the people that crossed the finish line are happy for the people that maybe didn't cross the finish line but went further than they've ever gone before so it really is an amazing community it is it's a realization of what you're capable of doing and I know that for for a long time and even now people when they first hear of ultras and I even say it sometimes too it's like wow that's crazy or you're crazy or oh you're one of those crazy runners but I, I love to just replace that word with courage. And I really think like, no, these people are just like, they're courageous enough to try. And running far when it comes down to it, and especially if you've been in the sport for a long time, pretty soon the distances that used to feel far, they don't feel that way anymore. And, and it shows you how adaptable and how powerful the human body is and starts to make you think, Wait, what else are we capable of doing? That's a great point. And so I think that that's the way I, I look at it is you are having these experiences with strangers who soon become your friends and you don't have an opportunity to do that kind of stuff in everyday life. So I feel like you'll meet a lot of ultra runners who say some of their best friends are ultra runners because they go out on the weekends and they'll go for a three hour run, a four hour run, a five hour run. And the entire time they talk, they talk with each other, they have these conversations. When else in, in our lives do we sit maybe at a, even a coffee house and talk with a friend for three and four hours? Mm-hmm. We, we just, we're mm-hmm. moving so quickly these days and, and I feel like we're, we're more distracted than ever and we're connecting more on screens that that human connection is, we're starting to miss that. And I think when people do ultras, they start to love the sport for so much more than while we're going the distance they start to crave that human connection and really getting in touch with what we as humans are capable of doing. And I think the further you go in the races, so, you know, 160 kilometers, for example, you start to experience things about yourself. And if you have a crew that are very raw, you know, you're kind of stripped down to your core when you're, you're pushing, when you, when you don't have anything left and you're so tired or you're feeling pretty sick or sore and you have a team of people that are saying, we believe in you and we're going to help you get to that finish line. And it's, it's just a very unique experience. I think a lot of people will say like, I'll never forget that forever. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I think we, we want that in our everyday life. We want, we want that group of people around us supporting us through the hard times when we feel like we can't keep going when when life is rough and and I think that ultra running is just a beautiful parallel to life and you've been fortunate enough to make it from a hobby now to something that is your job (laughs) yes and and whether that's you know well I guess the question I'll let you say is Mm. is how does how does that happen how does it go from being a hobby to now something that is you know how you make a living yeah 
That's a great question. And I, now that I've been in it, I've, this is my ninth year with Nike. I am getting a lot of younger athletes asking me that same thing. And to be quite honest, it's, it is very difficult. The world of ultra running is very different from any other sport. You have to look at it from a business level. I think that's really difficult too for, I know it was for me when I first understood it. I think it's a dream for athletes to be sponsored and be signed. And what you see on TV or in magazines is probably not always like the best representation of what it is to be a sponsored athlete. And so um, there's a lot of moving parts that go into being, um, to being able to make ultra running a career that actually supports you. So for me, I kind of came about it in a very um, untraditional way because I was already a mom uh, to just, we'll just start from there. And it's really rare for, uh, you know, for women with children to, after having kids, then become professional athletes. And so I knew at a very young age that that was something that I wanted to do. I thought I'd be a professional soccer player. But I kind of kept that at the core of my training. I knew how to train hard. I knew how to put in double days and all of that. So I think I carried that into my ultra running and thought, what what can I do here? When I realized that I was placing well and at that time, so once like 2011, 2012 hit, brands started to come in and start forming teams. You really saw a lot of brands like 2013. And I knew that, you know, I'm not the best in the world, but, um, I do need to be doing the races where the best are racing. So that's a key first and foremost, I think in ultra running, because there's a race every single weekend, a lot of the races are small. It's easy to be like, to be in the top 10 in a lot of races that are local and realize like, yeah, there's 50 people racing or there's a hundred people racing. And so I knew that if I was going to get noticed, I had to race with uh, the top runners and and do the top races. And so that was, that was my goal. Um, After 2010, I took 2011 off, had some injuries and then 2012 and 2013, it was my intention to get strong uh, race competitively. And then, um, I had a couple brands come after me by the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, but it didn't, you know, as soon as I was signed, it wasn't like I had all these big paychecks, like flowing. I was still working. People might imagine it's Yeah. Yeah. I'm nine years in and, um, you know, I, you know, I'm not afraid to share this. I don't think a lot of people do, but um, I do make six figures as as a professional athlete. And I have um, several incredible sponsors that support me and, and believe in me. Um, but I, I would be lying if I said that, that, is, um, that that's common in our sport. There's not a lot of athletes that are able to make, a, you know, an honest living um, doing this. And I think that we have to be well-rounded. So you have to be contributing, giving back to the community. You have to, um, always be doing different things too. Like I've, I know every year I'm always trying to make new goals and go to new races. And I travel around the world a lot. And, um, you know, my greatest love is actually connecting with people. So pouring back into the community, there are so many people that helped me in the beginning when, 
Man, I, even the first couple of years that I was signed, like it was rough. Like my husband and I struggled financially because I left like a full-time job to pursue it. So we actually, in the beginning of my professional career, I was in the red a lot in my bank account. Like it was really, really stressful mm. on us. And so I think, you know, it's one of the first times I've, I've actually talked about that because, um, it is a secret. You can't talk, you know, normally you're not allowed to talk your contracts with other people, but, um, you know, in a very general way, um, I can say that it, it takes a lot of hard work and commitment and dedication and belief and, um, sticking up for yourself too. I mean, I've had, you know, contracts with people and, and negotiations where you're like, wow, this company does not believe in me. And, um, and I'll have different people tell me, look, well, you know, you're just not worth this or we, we don't, you know, you can't have this. And then, um, this actually happened to me a couple of years ago and I went to a different company with the same type of gear and they offered me 10 times more really? than what the other company did. And so you've got the belief in yourself. You have yeah. to believe in yourself, but you have to be a business person. You, and, and that is, that's across the board in every single sport. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes I talk to athletes, even fellow competitors. I've, I've tried to be a mentor uh, behind the scenes to a lot of fellow competitors. I'm like, you, you come and talk to me. I will help you. Yeah. You know, I can help you with the negotiation because, you know, in ultra running, we, a, a lot of us that got signed, there was no one for us to help us understand, okay, what does this mean? What is it now that I'm a professional athlete? Like, what does that mean? And I think that ultra runners can kind of be seen as low hanging fruit for a lot of the brands. And, oh, we'll just give you a uh, gear and then, you know, do all this stuff for us. Do, you know, give us like thousands, tens of thousand dollars worth of marketing yeah. and I'll give you some free socks or a pack or a, a gel or something like that. And so, um, you know, I've really made it my goal in the last few years. I've, I've helped quite a few athletes understand how to negotiate, how to stick up for themselves and, um, and help them understand like, we need to be having these conversations. You need to be a business person. This is how our sport's going to get better because it's, it's growing. It's going in that direction where it is getting more coverage. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my hope for the future, for yeah. the future athletes. It, it doesn't sound yeah. like it has happened to you, but it, it feels like there could be a danger of it damaging your relationship with the hobby that you fall in love with originally, mm. for, you know, for it being a hobby. Yeah. But when you add it as as a way of you making money. And obviously, like you said, mm. there are only a, a select amount of people that are in a, you know, a fortunate position where it's a full-time job and, and, and you're doing well from it, but it could damage the relationship you have with it. That obviously hasn't happened to you. No. In fact, I, when I first signed, man, I, I was such a softy, you know, I thought everyone was my friend. I thought every brand that I work with that, um, you know, we're all friends and we're all in this together. And it, it took me a couple of years to realize the end game for every brand is that you sell product. Yeah, That's what it is. If, you, if you're not making money for that company, um, you know, that's great that you're getting on the podium, but it needs to be both sides. We need to, you have to do well, but you need to sell our product. And man, that was a really like, that was a, a, a pretty tough wake up call for me yeah. is realizing your, your job isn't just to run. You need to be um, a solid, you know, ambassador in the sport on so many different levels. And I've always there. I have two commitments that I've made to myself, and this is even outside of sports. And the, the first one is that I'll always stay true to myself. 
So I have left companies and I have um, not taken really nice contracts because of what they asked me to do. And I just tell them, like, I, I'm not going to operate in that way. I, th- that is not what I'm about. Um, and I, I'm not your salesperson. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. And if you don't let me be authentic and who I am, then we, ca- we can't work together. Um, so, but that took me time to gain that confidence and to understand that if you can understand that, that brands need to do their job, you know, they, they have, that's why they exist. They're yeah. trying to sell a product. They're going to support you as, as best they can. They do believe in you, but there's two sides of the relationship. So you have to be respectful of the business side, but the relationship building is huge. And I actually care way more about that. So I have worked with companies with who have offered me a lesser contract because I believe in the group of people. I believe in, in what they're doing in their mission and how they treat others, how they treat their employees and, and my immediate, you know, people that I, um, that I work with. So I think that, you know, because of that, I've been able to still really enjoy the sport. And I've, I work with some pretty big brands that have given me, the most incredible life experiences. And, you know, when I, when I first signed, I, that was the the second goal for my career was that I wanted to create a career that was based on so much more than course records, medals, and FKTs. Those things are wonderful and they're awesome. And, you know, I'm, I am a competitive athlete, so I love being on that podium, but I do also see sport regardless of what it is as, um, you know, you, you see athletes that are great for a couple years or they have records for a few years. And then there's just one more person right behind them that, that they're second, they're, they're the ones setting the records. They're the ones that are now, you know, at, at the top of the podium. So I really believe in creating a career that is, has something distinct about it. And, um, so I wanted to create a career that where I could use my platform to encourage people. Yeah. Well, I had, I had so. that written down <laughs> of, of inspiring people is the message that you're, you're giving and you're encouraging people to do is you're passing that along. And mm-hmm. When you have that ethos of working with brands, you want it to work and it's not just a number on a, on a contract. It's actually mm-hmm. so much more than that. And when you're passing that along, it encourages the next generation of people that are coming up to act in that way. And it encourages then the other brands that maybe weren't playing ball to start but thinking, oh, actually, we should probably <laughs> really be thinking about how we're, like you said, treating employees and, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the mission statement and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also something on your website that that was intriguing that was the greatest dreams are achieved as a team mm-hmm. and running is for the most part an isolated can be an isolated sport into when people think about oh, just running you're on your own you've got headphones in or whatever if you're doing an event yeah. but and yeah I think you touched on it earlier support teams mm-hmm. and whether it be family or the crew, people that are crewing you or the people that you meet along the way that sometimes you just need to be pulled through a certain section it's such a big part of running and sometimes doesn't doesn't get talked about as much but how important is that aspect for you mm-hmm. yeah the the team part is one of the most important parts i think ultra running um in this in in the umbrella of running as a whole 
I think is the, the one, um, the one space where even outside of your crew, even outside of your family, the people that you're running with, the people that you meet in the aid station, they, they become your team because it's all about, you know, moving. We're all trying to get, move forward to that finish line. And man, I've, there've been some key moments in races where complete strangers have really, really helped me mm-hmm. in races. Um, I remember I was racing in New Zealand a couple of years ago and, um, it sounds funny now looking back on it, but it actually was pretty scary. I choked on a gel. I mean, pretty bad. <laughs> I was coughing and um, really struggling for about 30 seconds. And this runner came up behind me and literally like I had to like lean over on, on my knees and he was like hitting my back oh, and the, you know, I just like sucked it down in the wrong way. And it was so scary, but, um, I went back to New Zealand two times after that. And each time I, I saw this, this guy that had helped me out and just every time was so grateful for him. But I think, you know, things like that, I'm like, that doesn't happen in five Ks, you know, like <laughs> where you have, you're out there for so long that you have these, these experiences that are just, they're so unique. And even if it is like a competitor, you know, you hear of a lot of competitors like, oh yeah, we ran for 50 K together, you know, 50 K of the race, you know, just helping each other out. And, um, and I really, really love that. But from an immediate, um, team aspect, a crew side family, you know, I have so many memories with my crew who I've used pretty much the same crew for 10 years now. And many times they're the best part of the race. And I think, you know, my husband, the first time he was able to actually crew me was in 2021 at Badwater. Um, he was always one back at home taking care of the kids. And, you know, he'd put cards in my suitcases when I travel across seas to encourage me. And it's just always been such an incredible support to me over the years. I know that I, I, I wouldn't be able to do it on my own in a way that I would enjoy in a way that would be meaningful, in a way that would be impactful if I didn't have a a support. Cause I, you know, I talk to athletes all the time that say, Hey, I just come from a city where there's no trail runners. Like I don't know anyone that runs an ultra in my community. I also get messaged quite a bit. Um, people will, will say, Hey, like my partner does not support me doing this. They don't like that. I go out and run for three and four hours. Like how, how are you able to get that support from, from your partner or how did you find crew? And so I think that, you know, understanding that when you do find your people, like people that are going to support you, um, along the way, they're gold, hold on to them because I think it's a very selfless part of ultra running. When you sign on to crew somebody, it is a very unselfish thing to do. And it's, sometimes more exhausting than, than running the race. So I think it's important as runners, uh, if you are used to running all the time that you also get into that crew spot as well and understand what it is to truly support, you know, somebody. I've done it a couple so. of times and, our um, someone that works with us is, um, Mike loves running ultra marathons yeah. <laughs> and he said, just if someone's coming in and they're 60 miles in, just don't ask them how they are. They're yeah. obviously not great. <laughs> 
that's just so skip true. That. The first question, what do you need? Yes. What do you need? And it's mm-hmm. interesting seeing, and I'm sure your crew, if you've been doing it with them for the last 10 years, they know when you need an arm around you, a bit of support. They know when you need a kick out the backside and yeah. to say, come on, <laughs> back, back out, food, yeah. water, back out. And uh, it's, so, it's so important because it can, I, I imagine you, you okay, I've got a checkpoint or I've got something. I know I'm going to see my crew in mm-hmm. however long. I know I'm going to get the support and it just takes everything else away from you that you have. You can just focus on moving forward and pacing and things like that. It's mm-hmm. so important. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the crew and the team aspect is something that I don't think it's talked about enough. Like we always see it like in posts. Thanks for the volunteers. Thanks for my crew. It's like, come on, like they are a massive part. You that race wouldn't have existed without the volunteers out there at the aid stations. Like, and and you wouldn't have gotten along over the that that course, you know, as strong without them. And so you know, it is, it is a team sport. It is a group effort to get people to a finish line. And I'll tell you, there's, I know at least in in my community, there are runners who are known for just, they do everything self-supported. You know, they push either a buggy along or drag a tire behind them with all of their gear. And they do these really, really, really long races. But I really believe that the greatest things in life are meant to be experienced with people. I think it's good. I mean, I, I run alone a lot in my, in my training and it's rejuvenating for my mind and my soul. Like I, I love that. But like I said before, my greatest experiences, my greatest memories, the most meaningful things that I've done and right down to the racing has always been because of the people that I was with, those who I supported. And many times when I'm asked about what was your favorite race or your greatest accomplishment, it's always the crew and and the people that were there that come, that come to mind first. And so I think that is, I, I would love to highlight that more because I think that would allow people to be a little bit more gracious with themselves and be a, a bit braver to try the sport. And it doesn't even need to be that you need to do a 160 K race, but even starting out with a 10 K it's, it's, it's understanding there's so many people just like you that are also afraid or they also don't have confidence or they look in the mirror and, and say like, I don't look like a runner. I'm not capable. And for whatever reason, you know, that, that keeps you from trying something um, it's remembering that it's, it isn't even about how fast you're getting to that finish line or what it takes, or maybe it takes like, you know, five DNFs before you actually make it to the finish <laughs> yeah. line, but all that trying, um, and all that connecting you make with people that that's what makes it so fulfilling. I think, um, th- what you said there is a massive thing that we've spoken about with other guests in the podcast as well. As soon as you start to realize that you can take time after the equation and, time on Strava doesn't really matter, you know, all of that type of thing. As soon as you take that and you just enjoy it, mm-hmm. you start to really take a lot more from it. And yeah. as soon as you realize, oh, I can only, like, what does a runner look like? I'm not, I don't look like, what does a runner look like? And as soon as you realize that oh, I can only run 5K, so when you push through and you've just done a 10K, oh, what other barriers can I push? And that's that's where it then you start to see, see it, the benefits of the mental side of it as well, other, rather than... Uh, just the physical side and it was funny when you were talking about um competitors sometimes running with each other and supporting you like (laughs) I almost see it like um when boxers finish and at the end even though they've been talking 
whatever beforehand <laughs> there's always most of the time there's a fist bump and there's a hug it's like because yes. you have an appreciation of what that person's got through to get there and I imagine it's similar on when you're seeing someone that's going through a similar patch as you or if you know you 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 felt bad uh, 20k ago but you're feeling good now and you know they're going through a you can support them through that mm-hmm. because there's that respect and it's a tough thing to, yeah. to go through so it's 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 such a wild I mean some of the races that you've done but that you see as someone who is is in the running community but can only see these ultras there are some of them are amazing different countries different communities yeah. distances um I mean I remember when I first found out about the Barclay Marathons and I was like what is this <laughs> I mean that was amazing that's an event in and of itself <laughs> talking to Gary about that yesterday was uh, amazing like full circle yeah. moment from watching the documentary and then chatting to him but oh. the, it's, it's an amazing world is there is there something that you haven't done that you'd love to try that's almost like for whatever reason you haven't done it but it's like oh, I'd love to give that a go mm-hmm. I would love to run across the United States um, that's not a race but I think my desire to do that is, is rooted in just everything we were talking about. I'd mm-hmm. love to do that um, as a way to meet people and to just discover different communities. And, you know, when you do something so extreme, you always learn a little bit more about yourself. And I think that's why I love ultra running. Mar- road marathons are... I like that you can actually write down, I mean, you can get an Excel spreadsheet and kind of map out exactly how you run each yeah. mile. Like you can calculate, road marathons can be so calculated and you can train for a road mar- marathon um, in London if you live in Canada. Um, it, you're, you're running on the road. Yeah. There's not a lot of variables. There might be a little bit of climb here and there. The weather might be a little, you know, but it's so easy to calculate that. So I'm usually drawn to events that are both mysterious to me and that I think would be very challenging. So running across America, I just, I can't wrap my mind around that. I think that would be, you know, very difficult. And even just the logistics of getting, (laughs) of being able to do that would be amazing. As far as races go, um, there are so many races now on the calendar that I feel every year I tell myself, Oh, I got to do that race or I need to sign <laughs> up for that race. Yeah. So it's, I mean, tour de Jantz is one of them. That's a, I mean, it's in such a beautiful part of the world. I love, you know, those mountains, but I think tour de Jantz is one. Um, I've gone back and forth with Barkley. I think that Barkley is a very different mm-hmm. event. I wouldn't necessarily call that like, you know, you're not going to, you want to be as fit and strong as possible and like have the the most amazing mental fortitude, which I I'm so happy you had Gary on. Like Gary is, he's iconic. He's a legend. And what he did at that race, 20 seconds or what, I I mean, is I can't fathom that. And, um, so I think because of that, I've always been kind of, I've been curious about it. Um, I feel it's difficult to get in. It's like, even that part is a mystery. <laughs> the so even that is weird. I'm like, <laughs> you got to take the driver's license with uh, the, yeah. the, the number plate with you. Yeah. Or be invited. I don't know. So sometimes I don't want to do it because of that. I'm like, I like the races where it's like, everyone is able to like, at least apply. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. There, I I love traveling. I love racing all all over the world. So there there are quite a few races. Like I've always wanted to do comrades. I've wanted to do um, Mount uh, Mount Fuji and um, gosh, loads yeah, and the list kind of. Go, the, well, it's funny you mentioned on. comrades. We've got Bruce yeah. Fordyce, who's who's um, we've had on the podcast, who's an amazing um, ultra runner, who, who's a massive part of that race. And oh. when he was telling me about that, it was just, the experience of yeah. that is amazing. Just the, the spirit of it, of, yeah. of that South African running community and the history of that race. I mean, that's why I want to do it. Um, it was actually one of the first ultras I wanted to do when I first came under the scene. I was like, oh, I want to do, mm. I want to do comrade. So I don't know. It changes every year. I had, I never thought I would be doing 200s. That's what my, my entire year this year is just 200s. And when I first learned about those, I, I actually did tell myself I will never do those races (laughs) because it's, it is, I come on. Like once you hit 200 miles, like how much like real, like solid running are you doing? Like (laughs) you can, you can, (laughs) right. But then after a while, I thought, oh, maybe that maybe that is why. Like maybe that is you got to experience. It I want to see like how much how much can I actually run this, and then what is going on mentally that is pulling you to the finish line. So this year is all experimental for me. It's going to be a year of learning. Um, you know, I don't expect that I'm just going to nail these two hundred mile races, but I'm 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 learning about them. I'm going to experiment differently with each one. So I'm doing four of them. Um, but yeah, I, but I laugh cause two years ago I told myself I'm never doing that, but I've said that a lot it's about some way. races. It's yeah. Always the way. <laughs> never say never. How do you manage to balance this with obviously the, uh, the mentoring and the coaching, but also being a wife and being a mother as well? Yeah. One of the probably most popular questions people ask, and I, I'm, First and foremost, I have 24 hours in the day, just like everybody else. So I don't have special hours somewhere, but I have learned that I, um, what has helped is utilizing hours that aren't popular. And so getting up at 4am is not a popular time to rise, but I would say that that's an extra three hours of my day, uh, that I can get a lot in. If, if you can train for three hours a day, um, six to seven days a week. <laughs> That's a part-time job. Yeah. Um, right there. You're, you're getting in some solid work. Um, on the flip side of that. Yeah. I, I do a lot of other things. I, I write, I'm, I have a book coming out here, um, in a few weeks. Um, we do a podcast. I coach, I write training plans, yeah. strength training. I can get a lot of that kind of work sitting at the computer in three hours in the morning too. So, um, not a popular, uh, not, not a popular way of doing things. I think that there's just, you know, some people start work at 5am and I have learned to be gracious with myself over the years because when I first started, uh, just as a mom, I realized how much my life changed because I was a mom. Like I was getting up in the middle of the night, um, with babies and then, uh, I really wanted to be a stay at home mom. So then I, I started my own business so that I could. So I started a running and strength, uh, training business and learned how to run a business. It's kind of like how I became a businesswoman. When I talked about that earlier, I had learned a lot of really hard (laughs) lessons trying to navigate that. But you know, that was all the way back in 2007 
And so learning how to not be afraid to take a risk, not be afraid to take a chance, I think has really helped me learn how to juggle things as well. And, um, I don't, I'm, it's okay that I don't do things the same way that other um, people do, particularly women. Um, it was, I definitely had seasons in my life where I felt really isolated because, um, you know, maybe I didn't join mommy groups because while my kids were at school, I was running in the mountains, you know, I wasn't going out for lunch and (laughs) sitting in gossip circles. Like I was, yeah. yeah, it was really different. And then I understood too, that, I couldn't always, at different seasons of my kid's life, I never had time to get just two hours of training in. So sometimes I would train two to three times a day. Um, I'd train for like 45 minutes in the morning when everyone was still sleeping. Then I'd train during nap time. Um, And then when the kids and everyone was in bed, I would start my training sometimes at 10 p.m. at night. And I knew in, in those times that it was just for a season. And I think you know, I got a lot of pushback from that. I was like, when are you going to rest? When are you going to take care of yourself? And it's like, I'm finding my way. I'm, I, I, I'm never going to know unless I at least try. And I knew that with every passing season as a mother, as my kids got older, their lives change and their schedules change. And so I just always was changing and reshaping my schedule too. And I found if I do life in a way that works best for me and my family and not be so critical of myself that it needs to look like these other women and the way that, you know, their houses look and how that they, they do their job and how they raise their kids. I'm going to be a lot happier because I only, I can live my life Mm -hmm. and only I have been given these two amazing kids to care for. No one else gets to be their mom. And so I'm going to do it in the, in the best way that I possibly can. So it isn't, it's not easy, but, um, but I've always, I I'm, I'm organized with my time. I know what I'm doing the next day before I go to bed. Yeah. Uh, and these are just very basic, uh, life success tools, you know, have a planner, write down your to-do list. If you're going to train early in the morning, your clothes should already be laid out before you go to bed. You should know what you're doing hour by hour for the, for the next day. As a mom, a lot of times those things get disrupted, you know, <laughs> if you got to pick up kids from the school yeah. or they get sick. But, um, I think it's, it's being okay with not always getting it right. I'm never trying to achieve perfect balance, but, um, I'll never stop trying to find a way to, to get it in. <laughs> Before I let you go, I've got to ask you about Badwater. And yeah. it's a race that if people are listening yeah. because they know you're on the on the podcast and they'll know what Badwater 3135 yeah. is. But for people that might not know about it, mm-hmm. give us a little taster as to what the race and the event is. Yeah. So Badwater has been around for, uh, gosh, a little over 40 years. And um, it first started out as just a, a challenge among a couple friends. They wanted to run from the lowest point in the United States to the highest point in the lower 48 states. So um, Badwater Basin sits about, I want to say it's like negative 263 feet below sea level. Mount Whitney sits 14,505 feet um, at the top of the mountain. That course is 146 miles. So um, once it became a race, um, you have to have a permit to climb Mount Whitney it, it, it became 135 miles. Mm. So the, the course still goes up to the mountain, but you stop about 6,000 feet from, from the summit at the start of the trailhead. What makes Badwater so unique is not only the distance of 135 miles, but the extreme heat. 
Um, the hottest temperatures in the world have been recorded there. Um, I believe in Celsius, I want to say it's like 57 yeah. um, Celsius yeah. is, like is the hottest. Yeah. You don't get a break from that heat. There's no trees. It's fully exposed. There's three mountain passes. So a lot of climbing in that race. Um, unlike any other ultra, your crew is with you the entire time. So they can drive alongside you. Um, well, they they park their car maybe one or two kilometers ahead of you. You run to the car, they give you a gear, and then they, they drive ahead. And they basically frog hop you yeah. the entire race. And that's to keep you safe, but also because there's nobody, no volunteer that's going to run an aid station out there. <laughs> yeah, in, a, in, a <laughs> in that kind of heat. Leaning back. <laughs> So yeah, it's they it's it's termed the toughest foot race on the planet. And I'd say when you look at pictures it's incredibly difficult to be able to grasp why the race is so hard because a lot of the pictures you're like, yeah, they're just running on the road and it's yeah. a sunshiny day. It's very difficult to explain that kind of heat to somebody. And for that long a time, this isn't a marathon. It's 135 miles. And the tarmac on the road is burning, <laughs> burning the, hot. the, the yeah. soles of your trainers as well. <laughs> and that's just aside from protecting yourself from the heat. And I mean, how do you, what's your nutrition plan and hydration mm -hmm. plan for that? You must be drinking liters of water a day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I did it in 2018, um, I was incredibly fit going in. I didn't get the, um, the salt and the electrolyte, uh, balance. Right. And because of that, I, I had a, in my opinion, a very poor performance. And I was pretty upset because I really wanted to win that year. That was the, the goal, mm. but I took what I learned. And in 2021, that was one of the main focuses of my training. So I had the high mileage and the strength training and the heat training. Um, but I really focused on finding different temperatures and studying myself. So I would have a notebook that I kept um, notes in and I would uh, drive and spend two or three days in, in different climates in my area because high deserts yeah. all over me, all around me. And I learned um, what I could eat and what I couldn't eat, what I could drink, what I couldn't drink, how much I needed, and um, watched a lot of uh, YouTube presentations by professors talking about heat training and nutrition. So that was, it's very unique to each individual. So anyone listening, you have to do experiments on, on yourself to really nail that. I think that's probably one of the toughest parts of the race of uh, one of the toughest challenges, I think for, for the athletes in that race. How are you acclimatizing for the heat then in training? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the science of heat training, you can do 10, I think it's 10 to 12 days actually to, to get used to the okay. heat. I think when people look at bad water, they think that everyone's heat training for like four months straight. I think that can hurt your performance. Um, you can't, there is definitely too much heat training that can go into it and it can exhaust you and kind of ruin you. So for me, I, I did a very gentle build and, um, I did a lot of infrared sauna training and in the months leading up, I just do like one or two days a week. And then once I was about, um, let's see, like seven, eight weeks out, I started to ramp it up a little bit. And then the last like couple weeks is when it was probably the most heat training, but I did, I was always looking, um, 
I would study the temperature for the week and I'd go find where a particular heat was and I would go and, and stay there. So it isn't always layers. I know so you'll see a lot of people, they'll train for la- with tons and tons of layers yeah. of clothes, which makes sense if you live in a place where you can't get that kind of heat. Access. But um, I don't think it's necessary to go somewhere that's 50 degrees Celsius and then layer up, like you're not going to do that in the race. So why would you do that? It's really about learning how to be in the heat, how to eat in the heat, how to move as best you can and be in tune with, with your body. It doesn't, you don't have to wear layers and layers and layers of clothing and go beat yourself up. Yeah. I see a lot of athletes do that and then they pay for it big time because they just, they then hurt their training and it takes a lot of time to recover from that. So um, a lot of trial and error, a lot of studying on heat. Yeah. So after <laughs> so. after twenty eighteen, twenty twenty one, winning it must have mm-hmm. been uh, must have been a great feeling. Yeah. And how are you? Is there a do you go into it going? This is the particular structure in which I want to run it, and and what's your plan behind that? Yeah. When I went into twenty twenty one, I was very um, focused on the temperature, and I knew I had written down in my notes how to run in, in different temperatures. So, um, I actually had my crew, I had these little thermometers on the car and I would ask them how hot it was. And then I would do the calculations in my mind. I knew what I needed to drink and what I needed to eat, um, and pace and paying attention to my heart rate. I think that helped me a lot to move through that course, um, a little bit better than I did in 2018. The thing, though, that was um, interesting is that I actually had more challenges physically than I did um, in 2018. So 2021, I had quite of, I had some intestinal problems that popped up um, 20K and into the race and stayed with me the entire race. So I was losing all my nutrition. Every 30 minutes, what I put in came right out. And... um, it then became a very mental race for me. That entire race was run on mental fortitude. And this is just going back to what we were talking about earlier, that the one of the greatest gifts in ultra running is discovering what you're capable of. But to take it a step further, if you can't apply that to your everyday life, you're missing out on the greatest gift because it allows you to apply those things in your work, in your relationships in dreams that you build up for yourself. And I remember when I was first hit with this intestinal problem, I remember thinking about how horrible, uh, I had felt in 2018. I remember thinking about how angry and upset I was at my performance. Like I was really down about it. Um, 2019 and 20, I had time to really think about it. And so I thought, man, the biggest thing that, that bugged me was what was going on in my head. And I have a decision to react in in a different way. And so in 2021 was about just my reactions. How am I going to react to this challenge? But what I had done in my training that year was during all my long runs, I would think about all the terrible things that could possibly happen at Badwater. You know, what if I lost all my toenails or my all, I had tons of blisters, which I normally don't. I don't get blisters when I run. Um, what if I like pull a muscle or my my back gives out? You know, yeah, what are, what are all the things? And and through those runs, I would then think of solutions. 
And I would say, you know, they're not problems. They're just these, um, these situations that need a solution. And I would come up with the solution. So in, in 2021, when I started really struggling with my intestines, I told myself, yeah, this is just a situation that needs a solution and we're going to work through it every step of the way. And that was, that was the goal. That was the goal without even knowing it going in was when something happens, I'm going to work through it. I'm not going to be dismayed by it. I'm not going to be shocked by it. I'm not going to be upset. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm going to stay grateful and know that I, I can still get to the finish line. Have control line. of it. Yeah. Amazing. And, and, and congratulations for that Thank as you. well. It's a massive, again, <laughs> from 2018 to then coming back and, and doing that. Uh, and you're running 200 miles races this year. <laughs> Who knows, in a few years' time, you're going to be doing something that probably this year you're saying, I'm never going to do that again. So it's it's exciting to see what's coming up. And just want to say a massive thank you for, for jumping on the podcast and, and the there's a lot of stuff there that people listening can take and it's been really, really interesting. And so the final thing from you is to leave a piece of advice for a guest coming on the podcast very soon. <laughs> and as we chatted about before we started recording, I don't usually tell people who they're leaving it for, but uh, you're leaving it for Dean Conez. Uh, so as a piece of advice, it doesn't have to be about running, but uh, it's something you would like to pass on. Yeah. Well, goodness. Um, Dean has been... Uh, he's a legend in our sport, and I know he's, and he hears this often, that he's inspired a multitude of people to, um, well, he, he helped a lot of people discover the sport, put it on the map, yeah. and I know he's heard about what a great inspiration he is, and I, and I think that um, when you're such a big name in the sport, and you hear so often, oh, you're an inspiration, and you meet so many people all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to almost like forget where it all started. You know, Dean's life I'm sure moves pretty quickly. He has a book that just came out. He travels quite a bit. Um, he's always, you know, encouraging other people. And so, um, man, if I had a moment to just sit and encourage him, I would just say, make sure that you never, ever forget who you are and, and remember that even as even as he ages, that um, it's about how you live your life and not so much uh, what your age is. And I think that out of gosh, anyone in the sport, Dean lives so young. <laughs> oh my gosh, the stuff that he does, he's just he is. Because I I ran into him actually at the hotel. And I had said something to him. I was like, man, you're a legend. He's like, no, that just means I'm getting old. And I was like, but it's not like it's, and there's nothing wrong with, with, uh, with aging, but it's like, you know, the way that you live is, is so vibrant and so, um, inspiring. There's so many of us that, that have looked up to him over the years because he hasn't been afraid to just keep going, to keep trying to keep doing new things. And so, um, yeah, my encouragement to him would just, to, to take a moment to appreciate and be, be gracious and with himself and to celebrate himself maybe a little bit more often because, uh, he really is just an incredible, incredible human and he's still paving the way, um, after Absolutely. all these years. Absolutely. So I look forward to yeah. passing it along. Thank you. Yeah. Salute, so, thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you. 
Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Outside and Active podcast with Sally McRae. Don't forget to check out the two sponsors of this week's episode, eGlove and Dry Rope. Thank you very much to them for supporting us on this adventure. We'll be back next week with another episode, but until then, enjoy the outdoors.